Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. On the program today, John Shivik, wildlife expert, is with us. His book is The Predator Paradox, Ending the War with Wolves, Bears, Cougars, and Coyotes. First, unfinished business from yesterday's program. Near the end of the program yesterday, we uh, had this email come in from Steve in Beaver Dam, Arizona. If you remember, we were talking about net neutrality and the open Internet. We had a couple of uh, tech experts on, uh, including... uh, Josh Steimley from Hong Kong. He has a business in uh, Salt Lake City, but he's opening a branch in Hong Kong. And uh, this is how Steve responds to a couple of comments that uh, Joshua made. Uh, He says, your Hong Kong guest's observation that he doesn't care about net neutrality so long as all network traffic is fast is off the mark. For one thing, here in the United States, network traffic is not all fast. And in the foreseeable future, there's no prospect that this is going to change. So your guest describes a hypothetical scenario, not reality. Second point is that in such a hypothetical world where all traffic is fast, corporations would have no incentive to create a fast lane in the first place. Everybody's already on it, so it's moot. Uh, Steve goes on to say, of course, who could not agree with your guest that it would be much better if all traffic were fast. And in much of Europe and Asia, that is, in fact, the situation. But that's not the situation here in the United States, which is why maintaining net neutrality is so very important here. Over there, where Internet speeds are so much higher, net neutrality takes care of itself. After all, there's no reason for corporations to reserve fast lanes for themselves when everything travels on the fast lane. But that's decidedly not our situation in the United States. So right, Steve in Beaver Dam, Arizona. Thank you very much, Steve. We've emailed this uh, comment uh, to our guest, Josh Steinle, in, in Hong Kong. We'll see if he replies. If he does, we'll get that on the air for you. In the meantime, go to an issue that's very important to uh, all of us, especially in the West. Stories of backyard bears and cat-eating coyotes are becoming increasingly common, even for people living in non-rural areas. Farmers anxious to protect their sheep from wolves aren't the only ones concerned. Suburbanites and city dwellers are also having more unwanted run-ins with mammalian predators. And John Shivik, wildlife expert, my guest for the hour today, says it might not be a bad thing. As carnivore populations increase, their proximity to people, pets, and livestock leads to more conflict. We're once again left to negotiate the uneasy terrain between elimination and conservation. In his book, The Predator Paradox, veteran wildlife management expert John Shivik argues we can end the war while still preserving and protecting these key species as fundamental components of healthy ecosystems. By reducing almost sole reliance on broad-scale death-from-above tactics and incorporating non-lethal approaches to managing wildlife, we can dismantle the paradox, have both people and predators on the landscape, and ensure the long-term survival of both. John Shivik joins us in studio. Welcome. Hi. Good morning. Thanks for coming in. Um, oh, maybe we could uh, define the paradox first. Yeah. This this paradox has to do with this uneasy sort of uh, sort of relationship. It's it's yeah. it's a human thing, right? What it is, the essence of this paradox is this idea of we like to have our cake and eat it too. That's what we want. We want to have predators on the landscape. Um, We'd like to have these beautiful species out there, but at the same time, we're really reluctant to have the damage or live with the damage or the problems that they cause. And, and that's, the, that's the essence of it, to try to, we want to have predators and don't want to have them at exactly the same time. Yeah. Uh, and I think this goes, uh, it goes back to deep-seated fears. You can, you can, you can find mythology <laughs> uh, coming out, literature and, and so forth, folklore in Europe, you know, going back thousands of years. Right. Yeah, that's a point. I think that's really an underlying theme. I mean, that pops up frequently in the book. 
And, and, and the reason we get reactive with these animals is because of that fear. And some of it is we don't know enough about them, just general public. A lot of people don't, you know, aren't familiar with their actual habits, the biology of it. And the initial response is to, is to overact, become incredibly fearful of them. And that leads to more intensive management methods when more constrained things could actually, actually be useful. You can understand this on a you know very visceral level. Um, these sorts of animals can not only kill and eat my pet; they could kill and eat me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and so in your book, you you outline the dates, the years in which wolves were eradicated from certain countries. Right, right. Uh, sort of milestones in Europe, uh-huh. and we brought our fears with us about wolves, and then found new predators. And in fact, um, I think what did wolves, grizzly bears were pretty much eradicated from at least the lower 48. Yeah, most of the, the whole lower 48 wiped out pretty much everything. But um, I, to put it in full context, it wasn't just wolves and, and those. We almost we killed all, all, almost all the deer. You know, in the, in the 1920s, there was probably only 5,000 or deer, 5,000 or so deer in Utah. And... Uh, uh, hunters and sportsmen kind of saw that going on and this whole field of wildlife management was created and this responsible wildlife management and we brought these game populations back where now we have you know 350,000 deer in Utah so that's pretty neat and then on the tail of that um, back in those days there couldn't have been predators around because when we were actively pursuing hunting killing poisoning them, but also there weren't game populations. There wasn't anything for them to eat. Now we've got a situation where game populations are coming back. We've got the environments where we can also have our predators. And now we're kind of caught holding the bags like, ooh, <laughs> we've got right. our predators back or we want them back. Now what do we do? And that's where it, and much of your book gets into non-lethal techniques, Absolutely, yeah. uh, which you say can solve the paradox. We can... By these methods, we can have our cake and eat it, uh, too. I want to uh, backtrack a bit, talk about this war that's in your title, Predator Paradox, ending the war with wolves, bears, cougars, and coyotes. Before we get to that, coyote or coyote? (laughs) Yeah, that's that's one of the the coyote versus coyote is one of the most common asked questions I get. um well, what typically happens, typically people from the coast will, or coast or either side or non-rural will typically say coyote. Uh, uh, and then I always say coyote just because I say it enough times. I probably save, I'll probably save a few months out of my life and time just by losing that extra syllable. Right. So it's just right. simpler. Yeah. If but you, either way is fine. Either way is fine. If you work in it a lot. It, yeah, and, exactly. And coyote. I don't have time for coy- three so, syllables. So is it, I think, a Nahuatl word, coyote. Uh-huh, right, uh-huh, and then, uh-huh. And then I guess the Spanish added Spanish an added, e, right. coyote, and then exactly. off we go. So yeah. either one is acceptable, absolutely. I guess. Absolutely, yes, okay. absolutely. All right. Um, so uh, the, the war, uh, maybe we could frame this, you do it very interestingly in the book, uh, through the shifting titles of this agency yeah. called Wildlife Services. Now, it was called Animal Damage Control in its history. This is not to be confused with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. This is, this right. is something else. Well, they were even under, there's a bi- they're under Biological Survey. Uh, they were under Fish and Wildlife Service for a while. It's had a bunch of shifting, na- shifting names from, you know, eradication was in the title for a while, predator um, control. So it, it, part of it's the bureaucracy of shifting government agencies and things, and part of it is just sort of a kind of awareness and environmentalism. When, when this agency that was tasked essentially with, uh, at the point at that time, more eradicating predators, uh, found itself in the Fish and Wildlife Service, which was really about 
bringing back animals and, and, and administering the Endangered Species Act, it wasn't a very good fit. So in the 80s, they, they, um, at the time, it was even known as animal damage control, which has a lot of baggage. You, you, you say ADC among certain crowds, and people get their hackles up immediately. But uh, so they changed to wildlife services. I think it was in 84 or so. And uh, that part of it is to acknowledge that. I mean, that's what they're trying to do. They are providing a service. And and they definitely have been moving to more selective and more targeting problems and that kind of a thing. So you're seeing the agency evolve both in methods and in name. Uh, but I still think there's, you know, there's a there's a long way to go still, too, as far as how we're handling things. It's interesting that the, the name changed as uh, public opinion changed, yeah. uh, you know, whether or not it's, uh, you know, was changed in response to that or not. That, you know, it's a matter of debate. But the, the agency, at least at times, uh, existed principally to thin the herds, you know, to 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 kill predators. Yeah, exactly. Well, to respond to these predators on on, on the landscape. Then we got to think back. So this was, you know, 70s, 80s. There's the environmentalism, environmentalism kind of really started to become more and more mainstream. We, you know, the Endangered Species Act, Nixon banning toxicants on all the federal lands, which, you know, as you follow the narrative here in the story, you see how you know, they ban toxicants, then they lose that tool to manage predators. So then that leads to more reliance on aircraft which uh, gets people up in the air, aerial gunning, hunting, killing, especially coyotes that way out, out in the West. So these things progress, and one little change or one change here and there kind of it, it, it rebounds and reverberates through how we're, how we're doing predator management. And, and you take that metaphor, you had people uh, coming out of war, World War II, with skills, right. mm-hmm. low-flying skills, yeah. who then were able to transfer those skills Still pretty dangerous. You, you've we've had people die yeah. doing this, right? Yeah. Uh, tell me about you. You, I think you went up in a uh, probably many times, at least in the book, you went up in a helicopter. I think or right. Uh, I can't remember. It was a fixed wing aircraft. Uh, these were managing euphemism, killing yeah. <laughs> coyotes. Yeah. Uh, who you, you wait till snow, right? So you can see oh. them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's an art to it. I mean. I, I think the war word, I mean, I know that's a strong word, but it really did come about from when you look at it, we've got aerial operations where there are ground crews calling in aircraft to um, shoot animals. There are minefields of traps and things and um, booby traps in terms of M44s, which are sodium cyanide ejectors. So there's a real reliance on more of that kind of real intensive reactionary versus more the diplomatic <laughs> diplomacy of uh, non-lethal methods, I guess you can think about it. So, um, yeah, the, the, aerials, the aerial work is not it, – it's not – it's not as simple in, in, in many ways. It's, it's usually you'd wait for snow, then you have fresh tracks, and then it's easier for the aircraft to backtrack and follow or, or follow tracks to find where coyotes are. Uh, much easier to find them, and then they, they're, um, they stand out on the snow more than you know, on, on uncovered ground. Other ways that they'll do it is um, they'll have a ground crew that's actually howling up the animals when they hear the owl, when they hear the howls, they can then vector an aircraft into to where the animals are. So there's an art to it. Um, you know, but I, I do want to say, definitely point out that there's also, there's danger to it. It's uh, putting humans flying low in aircraft 
And over the last decade or so, we've lost a dozen or so people. Mm. And and that's what I mean. There's like there's there's a real cost to hitting it this hard this way. And when I think of the value of a coyote or the value of a human life, it's the human. You know, is it, is how many coyotes are worth? Is any coyote worth a human life? And, well, I, I know the answer. To that. That's no, no. And is it is it worth it to? to risk people f- for this. so Right. If you just joined us, we're talking with John Shivick. He's a, a wildlife uh, management expert. Uh, he lives in Logan. Uh, his uh, book, a very interesting new book, is called The Predator Paradox, Ending the War with Wolves, Bears, Cougars, and Coyotes. Um, this, uh, these methods, including death from above, as, as some people call it, are very effective. Uh, you, in fact, you have an appendix where you take the year 2011, I think, mm-hmm. and you, you, you outline how many animals were killed. I'll just read some of these totals. Um, let's see. 84,584 wolves, coyotes, bears, and lions were terminated um, in 2011 alone. 365 wolf deaths, amounted to exactly one wolf a day for the year. And then there's collateral damage, raccoons, ungulates, birds, other species. Um, it's, it's a lot of animals killed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder, before we go to a break, I wonder if I could have you read, you get into the heart of the matter here. And this is on page uh, 13. Uh, first, to set this up, you're talking about coyotes and uh, how they are set up to Reproduce at a, at a high rate, uh, reproducing, I guess, as a lot of animals do, to replace those who likely will be we killed in the natural course of, of life. Um, and, and then they have been termed a weed species. Mm-hmm. I take it this is, I don't know whether that's meant to be pejorative or not, but maybe just to... Well, that's the question, isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, so taking up that, I wonder if you have you read these couple paragraphs. Okay. The term weed, or its animal equivalent, varmint, begs the questions, is nature supposed to be an even lawn without competition and variation? Are humans different than other animals and rightfully set apart from nature? Who should be expected to altruistically forego reproduction, limit their range, and not alter the environment to suit themselves and their progeny? Is one worse than the other, a pregnant woman painting a nursery or a coyote digging a den? How How different people approach or answer those questions tells a lot about how widely fundamental human values can differ. Some people would be offended that the questions are even posed. Others are smugly confident in their own reply. Some are entrenched on one side or the other, but many struggle on the uncertain no man's land in between. Hmm. And that's where you're, that's where we get into this paradox here. That's where you're trying to, right. I think trying to get at. The, the danger is that in some ways I've been accused of anthropomorphizing animals, whereas what I think I'm more trying to do is more animalized people and and make that connection that we're doing a lot of the same things that wolves, bears, coyotes, cougars do, and uh, but we can we can hopefully see into the future a little bit and kind of choose how much so we do it. Are we gonna are we gonna doom ourselves or are we gonna kind of think about in rational ways how we're impacting the environment and thus impacting ourselves? You you say we're we're doing some of the same things that these predators are doing. Maybe expand on that to what some yeah, examples. Yeah, well, I mean, coyotes are ex- reproducing and expanding across the landscape. 
it's a lot like what people are doing. Mm -hmm. And so we're just doing our our biological imperative. We're doing what we're supposed to do Mm -hmm. as people. We're expanding. We're growing. We're... Uh, you know, we're having children. We're trying to create nice lives, and and that's 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 what coyotes are doing, and they're doing it in our cities and in our backyards. And uh, wolves, all all these guys are they're we're kind of we're all in the same boat, um, and we're all doing exactly what you'd expect uh, any species to do. Yeah, uh, uh, some of those questions get to the heart of the matter, don't yeah. they? The values that we have are are we here as humans to create an even lawned Eden? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, or are we supposed to coexist? Uh, and it comes down to values, doesn't right. it? Right. That's the crucial part here. It'd be it have been a lot easier just to write and say, oh, all you have to do is this non-lethal method or that non-lethal method, and then there you go. We have a peaceable kingdom. I think it's a lot more honest to address the value system straight on and to acknowledge that there's different motivations that different people have to deal with these problems in different ways. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's important to understand where other people are coming from, where it, it, there, there, are, there are real problems that these animals cause for ranchers and things. And it's terrible to put ranchers or farmers or whatever in a box and say, oh, they're just ranchers or farmers and they shouldn't think, they should think like I do. I think it's pretty important for us to be honest with ourselves and know where our value systems come from, allow them to have their value systems, and then let's look in rational ways. Let's get past that, work in ra- look in rational ways to, to, to resolve the, the issues. Yeah. And there isn't a paradox anymore. Right. And this is not only, uh, you point out, West. This is everybody. Everybody, yeah. You're living downtown Chicago. Yeah. Uh, we'll, maybe we'll get into a little later. Not only are these issues important to you, I guess, as as an American, but you might have some coyotes in, <laughs> in your downtown park. Yeah. Well, it's in both ways. One, it's 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 direct where if you're – there are coyotes in downtown Chicago, in Central Park, in Seattle. So in you know, bears are showing up more and more, and you're going to see more of them. Cougars are expanding their range. You're going to see more issues with those guys too. But I think it's bigger than that, and I think – uh, a lot of folks, especially in sort of the urban environments, are not they're 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 really separated from nature and really separated from the the red tooth and clawness of nature. And one of the other things I wanted to do in this is connect those dots for people. And a lot of it has to do with food and where our food comes from and our food production system. And try to get people to ask the question, uh, you know, as far as eating meat, how much meat, and what kind of meat you're going to eat. Uh, and and what kind of impacts you're having on the environment by making those choices? Hmm. Uh, you know how we if we want really cheap available food supply, then yeah, wipe out all the predators. If we're going to uh, assume some of the costs, if I want to live in a city but still know that predators are on the landscape, I should realize that I might need to you know belly up or I might need to to help to contribute a little bit. And there's movements doing that way. There's wild. There's a certified wildlife-friendly, predator-friendly, and and ways to to connect the dots better. So you can say, okay, I'll I want my grass-fed beef, and I want to make sure that people are raising it in ways that it's more harmonious with with natural systems and allowing predators to be on the landscape, rather than saying I'm going to kill all the predators and then we'll have a cheap hamburger. Yeah. Wildlife expert uh, John Shivik is with us. Uh, his book is The Predator Paradox, Ending the War with Wolves, Bears, Cougars, and Coyotes. We'll take a brief break. We'll be back with uh, more following this break. 
On NPR News, it's all about the story. People can surprise you anytime. The people behind movies, books, and music. Music is like a Rorschach test, you know, and people hear what they want to hear. I'm Arun Roth, the new host of All Things Considered from NPR News, now coming to you every weekend from NPR West in Southern California. Weekend afternoons at 4 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Prem Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, with a changing menu including an adobo marinated chicken panini with cilantro pesto, daikon sprouts, and provolone cheese. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about the Predator Paradox. That's the title of a new book by wildlife expert John Shivik. Subtitle is Ending the War with Wolves, Bears, Cougars, and Coyotes. As carnivore populations increase, their proximity to people, pets, and livestock leads to more conflict. And we're seeing those. You just have to open newspapers, uh, not only in the West, uh, you know, Central Park, Chicago, uh, other areas. And we're left to negotiate the uneasy terrain between elimination and conservation. In his book, John Shivik argues we can end that war while still preserving and protecting these key species as fundamental components of healthy ecosystems. By reducing almost sole reliance on broad-scale death-from-above tactics and incorporating non-lethal approaches to managing wildlife, from electrified flagging to motion sensor lights, we can dismantle the paradox and have both people and predators on the landscape and ensure the long-term survival of both. We're going to get into some of these very innovative uh, non-lethal methods. I wonder, uh, John Shivik, if, if you could uh, take us on the journey you take us in the book. Very interesting. So in the air, and the purpose is uh, killing coyotes. And th- this, I think, is uh, near Spanish Fork, th- this particular scene in the book. But uh, in various scenes in the book, you, you uh, take us up in the air mm-hmm. and have us see this wildlife-human interface. Um. And it's a pretty sharp-edged boundary at this point. And you, you argue for us to sort of spread that out and make it a little softer. I wonder if you could describe what, the way it is now. Right, yeah. I, the, the argument that I'm trying to make is that we we continue to divorce ourselves from nature in a lot of ways and separate ourselves. And we create it in this, you know, nature channels sort of image of a perfectly manic cured easy kind of thing and orderly thing and without the real cost or the the difficulties um you know or the pain that's involved you know if you want to get to the top of a mountain you need blood you need sweat and you know it's difficult i think living with wildlife is difficult i acknowledge that but i think it's worth it um to be able to be you know in a live in a state like utah for instance where i can go out and i can see a cuckoo track or see a see a bear or something like that is or, or feel the you know the, the hair raise on the back of your neck when you see a fresh track somewhere and you're wondering where this animal is and if it's watching you. That's a neat experience and it's a little unsettling, but I think that's living, you know? And and I worry that we're separating ourselves away from from nature in such a way that we're, you know, we're just I mean, meat becomes something in a package instead of something that was living once. Mm. And I think it's dangerous to co- completely separate ourselves that way. So I'm really arguing that we, uh, we learn how to live with wildlife and predators rather than just 
you know, can them up in a zoo someplace. I mean, I want, I've dedicated this book to my son. I, I want, I want, you know, 40, 50 years, however many in perpetuity, you know, I'd like him to be able to see these animals and have those same experiences rather than just seeing one in a zoo somewhere. That just mm-hmm. sounds like a terrible, terrible place for us to end up. Yeah. What's his reaction? You, I think you, you, you've, you, you say in your acknowledgement, you've dragged him out to, <laughs> to this interface, you do to on your research and such. Uh, what's you know? I won't embarrass him. I, you know, he's a thirteen-year-old. It'll sink yeah, in hopefully yeah, yeah. one day. <laughs> yeah, probably the same way my my dad dragged me repeatedly to the opera. Right, and exactly. It, he's it, thoroughly it, unimpressed it, right it, now. It, it it sunk in uh, eventually. Yeah. Um, I, I think we do tend to separate ourselves, don't we? It's we we want it clean antiseptic. Yeah, yeah. But increasingly, right, predators killing our pets, right. and there's increasing numbers of humans mm-hmm. being, as we as we're crammed into the same. Right. The same area. So the first, and that's where you brought that quote up, the first thing is to acknowledge that we're animals too, we're on the landscape, we're doing things exactly like what they are. Um, you know, one of the things as far as food, and I have a, I did a, I did a really uh, kind of a, oh gosh, maybe a little daring aside in here in terms of a, a hunting experience for me and, and my connection with gathering, you know, with getting meat and, and knowing where meat comes from and, and hunting and that also kind of helped me bond to realize, you know, why I like predators. I've got certain aspects of those behaviors within me, too. And everybody does to some continuum or another. I don't want to get preachy and say everybody should hunt or shouldn't hunt or whatever. I think that uh, animals vary and then people vary. And some might have a little bit more of that predatory instinct and some much, much less of it. But that's something that helps me make that contact with wolves and bears and, and all these animals is like, I understand my motivations, and it helps me get a little bit, um, you know, accepting understanding of their motivations, or at least that connection, anyway. Mm-hmm. And everybody has to kind of understand where they're where they are in their value systems and where they are in that continuum, and make their choices appropriately. Yeah. But um, I wonder if you could address the uh, person who perhaps would get offended by the, the series of questions you posed. Uh, you know, the mother painting her nursery. Does she have the same right to, you know, to? Yeah. To, to live as as the coyote, uh, you know, raising her cubs, um, th- th- there is a, a very strong strain of thought, often associated with religious belief, sure. that that man is set above, and and is responsible, and, and that could cut both ways in terms of stewardship. There's yeah, and and you know, my answer to be straightforward on it again, you know, for me, it's humans first, right? But part of being human is having this human quality of life and and having a natural environment that's worthy of being around, and then which means having these predators and things. I think that that question was posed because people are asking that, and there are people out there that say the problem with the earth is people. I can't get behind that, but I can say that, um, you know, I can say that, you know, <laughs> we, we can think about where we're gonna be in the future and if we're gonna doom ourselves by dooming the earth kind of thing, um, but, Relative to, you know, relative to the, the 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 woman, you know, painting a nursery or whatever, you know, that's that's the way we're gonna. I'm I'm gonna choose the people first, no matter what. 
We're talking with John Shivik. His, uh, his uh, book is Predator Paradox. Um, so well, let, me, let me add one other thing. Yes. I was just getting off, off track there. So, Because one of the things that's developed in this, and this is really interesting, one of the characters in here, I pick on a couple of my former students, and they're very gracious to let me do that. Um, Patrick Darrow, really brilliant, really smart guy. And he's he was really great. He he was raised LDS in southern and, and Idaho, and kind of really grew up grazed on a farm. And he he even jokes about you know that when you're raised that way, you see a coyote, you shoot it. That's just what you do. That's normal. Yeah. And um, you know he'd admit to me, and I'd embarrass him by saying that, but. Uh, he admitted to me that, well, if his brother wasn't around, he probably wouldn't shoot it. But if his brother or dad was there, he'd have to because that's what you do. But he also really tracked in how he changed through, and, and I learned a lot from him as he, as, he, as he developed, from this idea of you know, dominating nature to one of more of a belief that, um, from his perspective, God gave us this world and it's our choice, the way I understand, the, uh, um, the under- understand it, We've got the free agency to, to what to do. God's not going to come in and clean up after us. So he really realized that we really need to think about what we're doing in the environment versus just you know shoot first and figure out, think that somebody else is going to clean it, clean it up for us. And mm-hmm. so that was a real learning experience for me as well. It's like, you know what? We need to take responsibility here. And yeah. so that was neat. That was neat. Yeah. I think you know, for a lot of us, if you get beyond the stereotype, it's, it's very helpful. Yeah. Uh, you know, for me, and I think for you've told me as well, you start talking with ranchers one on one, and uh, you know that stereotype sort of falls away. There's there's a, a deep sense of stewardship in many of these people. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it's it's real economic losses that they're suffering, and so you can understand the motivation to go out and kill coyotes and wolves. Yeah, well, there's there's a mix, and and first one of the things the other character in the book was Grace Lynn Gilbert Norton, who came over from. From England, she's a wonderful human being, great scientist, everything as well too. And some of the things that she did, she came over as a psychologist and started looking at the coyotes that we had and working with different individuals, and with a large number of coyotes, and realizing that they are different individuals. And you have this idea of personality and have this idea of variance. And the, one of the first things we need to get over is to realize coyotes are like that, wolves are like that, people are like that, ranchers are like that. By far, most of the, the, you, the rhetoric you hear is just the angry one side or the other, whereas the people, and I have to underline that, the people I've worked with, uh, you know, they're people first. And their motivations, motivations, they need to make a living doing it, but they're not farming or ranching because you know to make to be millionaires they're doing it because of a passion for the lifestyle there's there's we're realizing this in urban areas that you know the louvre the last child in the woods and um wanting to get back to nature and those people are the ones they are they are walking the walk and you know walking the talk they're doing it and they're raising their kids in nature and they're doing the hard hard things so most of us don't have to and that's something to um to to realize they're afraid of losing their livelihood, not just losing a buck. So when a predator shows up, it's about more, it's potentially about much more than just, you know, five, ten, five hundred dollars. And sometimes that's where certain things like compensation schemes can even backfire because then it feels like a bribe. Yeah. You know, where yeah. they're like, I'm doing this this is kind of my passion. This isn't you can't buy me off my passion. Right. 
We're going to take another brief break. When we come back, um, I'll, I'll have John Shivick uh, tell a story about uh, Lynn. What's her last name? Gilbert Norton. Uh, so she's from England. She mm-hmm. comes out. Uh, she's working at the uh, Predator the Research Facility in Millville. Uh, north of Millville, or, or above Millville. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has a scary incident in yeah. the in the pens there with with uh, some coyotes. Uh, sort of takes us back to uh, the, these visceral attitudes we have toward predators, and at the same time, she's working on some of these non lethal right. uh, control techniques. We'll get into some of those, which are very interesting. Uh, it, how we're going to solve this paradox? At least according to John Chivik, his book is "The Predator Paradox." More following this break. Do you know that the more money we raise through non-federal financial support, the more likely we are to increase funding granted by other organizations, including the Corporation for Public Broadcasting? Your special one-time gift will help raise our funding potential and raise funds that are necessary to replace the aging KUSR transmitter, as well as an air conditioning system. Give UPR a boost. Add a special gift and support our technology fund drive by the end of Thursday. Go to upr.org and click on Donate Now. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Apogee Instruments, a Cache Valley company building small precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is John Shivik. He's a wildlife uh, management expert. His book is The Predator Paradox, Ending the War with Wolves, Bears, Cougars, and Coyotes. So, John Shivik, um, I promised that we'd have you uh, tell the story about your uh, your colleague, uh, Lynn. She's from England. Mm-hmm. Tell some funny stories about acclimating. She can't find uh, the right tea in, in the U.S. And she's appalled that uh, you, would, you would heat up the tea in a microwave. It should be a proper kettle, yes. of course. Yes. <laughs> but what she's, she's a psychologist, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So her training was from psycho- in psychology. So she's, she's studying coyotes and how do you, you, maybe you can train coyotes. Uh, and this is part of the non getting us into non-lethal uh, techniques for, for predator control. She had a scary incident in in this uh, facility here near Millville, here right. in Cache Valley. Yeah, she had to. Um, so she was just starting up. She was getting her research going this several number of years ago, and uh, she had to go. There were some items and buckets and um, uh, tools and things that were left in one of the large pens out there. It's this very big hectare pen, so it's you know a couple hundred yards long on a side, and she had to go in. And she did. And as she got about halfway into the pen, these turned out to be a couple of fairly aggressive coyotes. And they stalked her for a while and then started getting more and more aggressive. She had a, like she had a, what's a, a stick with her, a, a, what's a, a pin stick, which is a piece of, you know, rebar and it's got some padding and everything on it. And she was able to fend off these things and, and work her way back out of the pen. And, and the, real, I, the, the reason I wanted to relate that incident is to kind of drive home the point that these things are predators. They kill things for a living. Um, I'm arguing that we can live with them, but I also think we have to be honest and acknowledge that they're not, you know, they're not bunny rabbits on the landscape, right? Mm. So that there are costs and there are real dangers associated with them. Is it rare for a coyote to attack people? Yeah, it's happening more and more all the time, especially in suburban areas. And there are things we can do to kind of lessen that that danger. Um, cougars the same way. Is it you know, I did the calculation on it. It's what four hundred times more likely to be struck by lightning 
than to be killed by a cougar. A friend of mine I was just talking with, and he did some of the stats just on the back of the envelope for me, but he, he said the likelihood of something like two with eight zeros after it, you know, uh, of being killed by one of these cougars for a person. So it's really rare, but we open this conversation with fear. But a cougar kills a person, you know, a terrible tragedy, of mm-hmm. course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, you know, David Barron's, you know, best-selling book on it. Right. We really react to it yeah. in a visceral way. And that's where I'm trying to get on top of this fear and realize, how, should we ha- be really fearful or terrified of these animals? No, absolutely not. But should we respect them? Absolutely. Yeah. Tell me about some of these non-lethal techniques. These, these are very interesting. You're, you're, in essence, retraining wild animals, mm-hmm. aren't you? Or, or, or response Stimulus response, that sort of thing. Oh. Are, are these effective? Tell, tell me about a couple yeah. of these. Well, well, if we're doing it right, what we're doing is we're learning something about the biology of the animals, and then we're using their own behaviors in a way that's going to help them and us get along better. There are certainly one of the, the neatest things is, is flat, it's called flattery, which is essentially hanging flags off of a rope. And this is first started... Oh gosh, way back in you know hundreds of years ago, uh, especially in Eastern Europe, where they would string uh, lines of flagging through the forest in a big funnel shape, and then people would be on the one side and they'd beat the drums and make noise, and wolves would run away from the people, of course. But when they encountered this flagging, they would they wouldn't pass through it; they'd turn from it. So there's only this sort of a virtual barrier. There's nothing physically to keep them from going through it, but something based on the smell, sight, sounds of whatever, they had run along it and then people could use that to funnel these animals in. Well, we know that about them, so we can use flagging around pastures to to keep wolves away. We also know some of the research that I did that wolves, if they do investigate something like that, they'll go up, they'll sniff it, and they'll make maybe take a little bite or lick on it. Well, then if you have something they're initially afraid of, they learn about it, they habituate to it, well, now why don't we put some electric in there and make this electrified? So the first time they do test it, zap, oh, that stuff is real bad juju. I'm not going anywhere near that anymore. So it's a matter of being a little bit clever and then understanding the biology of the animals to, to try to adapt particular management methods to the particular situations we're dealing with. So it's, it's using their our understanding of their behavior too. Right, right. Well, it's essential too because there's something like flattery with bears. No, don't even go there. Yeah. You know, bears go through, I've always, I want to be a bear. They get to go through life just stomping on things and eating and then you sleep for, you know, the rest of the year. So their, their approach to life is very different, but they're, they, if you want to protect a beehive, electric works really well with bears, whereas flagging doesn't, but the flagging will work with wolves. So there's different ways you can respond to different animals and different sorts of problems and, and, and that's the thing. It's just to get all these things on the, uh, get all these methods in, you know, in our in our playbook is right. what I'm arguing for. Motion sensor lights? Motion sensor lights, too. I mean, that's going to be something that, especially we're up against the mountains here, and there are cougars and bears up in the hills, and that's something good to have. You have your dog out in the backyard or whatever, or, um, you know, first is is to make sure you're not doing things like having pet food out or cats or whatever, they're going to attract predators in. And then also use things like motion sensor lights. Cougars, they will respond to that. This thing clicks on, they will move away. So a lot of, and there's other kinds of sensors and motion sensors. One of the things I developed is called, became called a radioactivated guard where I, myself and colleagues, we rewired a, a flashing siren and light device. And 
uh, hooked up a radio receiver to it. And so if wolves were radio collared nearby, which was often the case, if that radio collared wolf came anywhere near the cattle were, the radio would hear them and, or the receiver would hear it and then would light up the lights and sirens and scare the wolves away. So I'm not even talking really rocket science here, but I think there's a lot of technologies and things we can adapt. And to tell you the truth, I'm pretty excited about where we're gonna go. You know, and there's all this talk about Amazon delivering the book with, uh, uh, with drones. That's right, You yeah. could be, I mean, there's ways you can guard your sheep with drones, perhaps, or at yeah. least sort of early warning systems or whatever. You right. know, I don't know where we're going to go with this, but I just, I just think we need to give it some more thought. Hmm. Now, can this, uh, I can see how this could help and, uh, you know, keep the predators in the areas where we want them um, and, and make this, this interface a little broader, a little less sharp. Yeah, know, I uh, hope. So that the predator is not, boom, right, right in our backyard right. immediately. Uh, but c- can this all be done without it, you're going to have to kill off some of the yeah. predators, aren't you? Uh, coyotes are, you know, they're, they're a weed species, <laughs> you know, for example. Sure. Um, you're going to have to kill some off, aren't you? Yeah. So and this is the other thing, too. And this is where I hope not to alienate people. If people are going to pick up the book thinking, oh, gosh, we can have a peaceable kingdom. It's going to be easy. And, and, and we'll just have this lovely place where people, you know, animals and people get along. That's that's not going to happen, and I also I resist this idea of this dichot- this dichotomy between um, lethal and non-lethal. Even I really look at it as a continuum. My argument is to to not just go to lethal first and then kind of think about these other things. My argument is to think rationally, uh, try to use the right approach for the right occasion. Okay, here here's an example. Let's talk about cougars, and there's been a lot of great research on this out of Washington. If you have a mountain lion, and I'll use that term cougar, mountain lion, <laughs> everything interchangeably, right. then uh, uh, if you have a, a big tom in an area, and he might take a sheep now and again, for instance, and, and be sort of an issue. But uh, typically what happens is they'll open up the area for hunting. People will remove this big tom. And what happens is then four new younger ones move in. So these animals are normally territorial and then self-limiting that way. If we go in there, lethally remove that that animal, now we've got four of them in there, young ones that are even more sloppy about killing and all that, and now you've magnified the problem. So that's an instance where, uh, you know, lethal isn't the most efficient solution. You know, there are times when, uh, you know, if it's human health and safety, then yeah, I am not going to go and say don't. Don't remove that coyote or cougar or whatever it is. And there is a certain absolute that, yeah, a dead wolf can't kill a sheep. A dead cougar can't kill a sheep. But there's a flip side to that. Not every cougar kills sheep or cows and not every coyote kills sheep or cows. So I think we can be selective and I think we can be efficient about how we're managing these animals if we think about it. I wonder if we could end the program, just a couple of minutes left here, on the human side of that equation. And you talked early in the program about uh, the fact that if we're, we're going to solve this paradox, uh, we humans, we're going to have to come to terms with the fact that it's, it's, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. The rewards are there, yeah. as, you, as you say. Uh, what do you say to people, uh, especially who might be resistant to these ideas and maybe just want to remove the, the predators and, and, and are comfortable just having their meat come from, you know, 
the butcher shop. It's not looking beyond that. Well, again, it's, you know, to each his own. I can't choose value systems and approaches to life for people. But I can say if we're losing these things and we're losing that aspect of humanity there that we're that we're not realizing how we fit into the natural environment i mean that's a problem for all of us and and you know there's plenty of plenty of evidence um you know research wise for how natural experiences getting out is beneficial for kids is beneficial for people psychologically and i think uh, you know, the first Leopold's, you know, rules as far as, you know, if you tinker with the system, the first thing is to keep all the pieces, right? So let's keep all the pieces here. And that just seems prudent. Um, yeah, I, if, if someone's really, you know, really, I'm about dominating the earth and I'm going to pillage and take the place over. And I don't care about anything. I'm sure I'm sure there are people that feel that way. I really doubt that's the majority of them. Mm-hmm. We'll leave it there. The book, a very interesting book. It's uh, just out um, from Beacon Press. It's called The Predator Paradox, Ending the War with Wolves, Bears, Cougars, and Cows. Environmental uh, management uh, expert, uh, wildlife management expert, John Shivik has been our guest. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, coming up next, of course, is StoryCorps. Later, uh, top of the hour, it is the Zesty Garden. Tomorrow in this hour, another episode of Climate One. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Utah Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. Fred Adams founded the Utah Shakespeare Festival, which is held annually in Cedar City on the campus of Southern Utah University. In 1962, while rehearsing Hamlet for the festival's first season, Mr. Adams and the cast had a charming but baffling experience, which is not resolved to this day. We are hoping that you, our listeners, can help us answer a question about that summer. So first, please listen to the story of the three little boys on bikes, told by Mr. Adams. But I'll never forget uh, our first season. Our first plays were Taming of the Shrew, The Merchant of Venice, and Hamlet. And, And we rehearsed Taming the Shrew every morning, and we rehearsed uh, Merchant in the afternoon, and then we rehearsed Hamlet at night, because Hamlet needed a larger cast than the other two, and so we, we pulled in uh, uh, the city postmaster and a couple of clerks from J.C. Penney's and, and, and that sort of thing. We had people who had to work during the day, but really wanted to work with us at night. We sat up our platform out on patio, uh, and um, we began rehearsing with just folding chairs and some risers for an audience. But I noticed almost the second or third rehearsal we had, we had three little boys. I would say, oh, ages uh, maybe 10 to 13, um, straddling their bikes, sitting there uh, on the sidelines, watching the rehearsal going on, watching us with books in our hands, watching as we blocked, as we memorized. Night after night, we tried to get acquainted with them. They didn't want to talk to us. We were those strange actors. But they never missed every night. You could set your clock at, uh, at, at 10 minutes to 7. Those boys would wheel in and sit straddling their bikes and, and, and sit there until it was over. And then they'd pedal off in the dark.
I was saddened, as was most of the company, when we finally added the final touches, costumes, and most important, an audience. When an audience was there, the seats were all filled, and there was the excitement of trumpets summoning the audience to the theater. And, all. and I looked, and there were no boys. The little boys were not there, and I, I was kind of heartsick about that. And years went by, many, many years went by, and I was telling the story of the boys on, on their bikes at a, at a women's club. In, in a little community called Richfield, Utah. And I t- finished telling the story of, and, and how much we regretted that those boys never really saw Hamlet, really saw Hamlet. The finished product with an audience, which is the most important of all ingredients uh, to the theater. And one of the ladies came up to me afterwards and she says, oh, Mr. Adams, I, I, I don't think you even know the end of your story. She said, those three boys are my nephews. I said, really? And she said, yes. Those boys lived in a little community called Canaraville. Canaraville is almost 12 miles Mm -hmm. outside of Cedar City. Uh, You wouldn't call it a suburb. It was another community. And those boys had permission from their dads to do their chores early, get on their bikes and ride in and, and, and watch the rehearsal and come home afterwards. And she said, and you know, you don't need to feel any regret. They never missed a performance. She said... Every night, they were scouting the trees that surround the stage, scouting where they could go early enough in the afternoon to smuggle into a tree and not be seen and still watch the play. And she said, but more important than that, she said, two of my nephews are married now with children, and one of them uh, is in the service. And she said, and to this day, my three nephews can recite word for word the entire play of Hamlet. Mr. Adams is now 83 years old and believes the three little boys would be in their early 60s. He would like to meet them, and so would we. Can you help us? Are you familiar with any aspect of this story? If so, please contact our producer, Shalane, at 435-797-0320. You can also comment online at upr.org by finding us on Facebook. Should we succeed in discovering the identities of the three little boys on bikes, we will bring that story to you. This could be fun. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving northwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at dixieregional.org.